National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio each Wednesday morning to discuss national security. We're joined each week by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. Our topics for today include the United Kingdom, Ireland, the Irish Republican Army, Brexit, and the UK's role in larger international security issues. We're joined by a specialist on the United Kingdom and Ireland. Devashri Gupta is a professor of political science at Carleton College, where she has taught since 2006. She holds a BA in government from Georgetown University, a master's in international relations from the University of Chicago, and a doctorate in government from Cornell University. Her research interests include the internal politics of nationalist and separatist movements, especially the relations between moderate and militant factions, as well as social movements and protest behavior more broadly. Her geographic area of specialty is Western Europe, with a particular focus on the politics of the United Kingdom and Ireland. In addition to her book, Protest Politics Today, she's published her research in a variety of scholarly journals, including Mobilization, Political Science and Politics, Comparative Politics, and Comparative European Politics. Her current research projects include an analysis of strategic redirections in Northern Ireland's Republican movement and the conditions under which tactical change might contribute to the formation of splinter groups and intra-movement rivals. At Carleton College, she teaches the introductory course in Comparative Politics, as well as courses on social movements, comparative nationalism, ethnic conflict, secession movements, and global populism. Professor Gupta, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm going to call you Dev if that's okay. That's great. We've known each other for a while. so yeah. <laughs> uh, Let's dive right in. There's a lot to talk about today. I generally start these discussions with a little uh, talk with our guests about kind of what makes them tick, uh, the things that they're interested in, that, that kind of thing. I, I, I believe the audience likes to know who, who it is they're, they're listening to. So with that said, what drew you to studying government and earning a doctorate in the subject? Well, I've always been really interested in history, uh, especially political history as a kid. Uh, my sister jokes that I was the only person she knew who was into ha Alexander Hamilton before he became a Broadway <laughs> smash. Uh, and I went to Georgetown um, right as Bill Clinton was elected. And so that was a really interesting time to be in Washington, D.C. It felt like, you know, all kinds of things were possible, um, thinking about how government could, um, uh, you know, advance public policy in ways that would really make a difference. But even so, I didn't go into public service like a lot of my, my, my peers did. I wanted to try something else, and, and I tried consulting for a few years. And it was, it was really interesting. I really liked it. I liked the company. I liked the environment. Uh, it felt like a, a miniature graduate school. It felt like a think tank. And so I liked that feeling. I just didn't like the topic. I didn't really <laughs> find myself motivated by the world of business. So uh, I decided to get a master's degree and maybe use that as a springboard to get back into the world of think tanks and research. But then I realized that I was actually you know, really drawn by the idea of researching things that I found really interesting, right, yeah. and taking a really deep dive into the topics that, that, you know, really compelled me. So after getting a master's degree, I went on to get a PhD. And by that point, I was really hooked. You know, I, I spent time doing field research. And I loved the experience of being able to talk to people about questions that I found interesting and that affected them. Uh, and then I also discovered along the way, I really liked teaching. And the combination of those two things brought me to Carleton. Okay. So you chose to focus your studies on, on, on Western Europe, and in particular on the United Kingdom and, and Ireland. 
Uh, why the UK and Ireland and the challenges in that relationship? What was it about that that sort of fascinated you? Well, it was kind of a serendipitous thing. Um, you know, I don't think I would have planned it this way. But in graduate school, I went to graduate school thinking I would actually study international law, uh, international organizations. And if I had to pick a, a geographic area, I probably would have gravitated towards South Asia. Mm. But when I got to the University of Chicago, their South Asia specialists were on sabbatical. And their uh, leave replacement was not someone I found a really compelling instructor. So my uh, advisor said, well, just take a class with, you know, a really interesting person and, and directed me to a class on Irish history, um, mm -hmm. who was taught by this legend who was about to retire. And I took that class and I didn't know much about Ireland. I'd spent, you know, a week traveling around with my sister when I was in college. Um, and I just found it to be profoundly um, interesting. And I think part of the thing that hooked me was the idea that I'd never really heard of in this way before, that Ireland was Britain's first colony. Mm. And, you know, my family is Indian, and so, you know, I, 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 and I was an Indian citizen until I was an adult. And so I have a particular understanding of what it means to, you know, um, live in a colonial context. Mm -hmm. And the idea of Ireland as a colony, a European colony, was really interesting to me. And, and then from there, I just got really interested in, in all matters of Irish history and, 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 and specifically the more contemporary piece, the 20th century piece, the Troubles. So the, the study of Ireland sort of got you into the broader study of the UK as a whole? or Yeah, I think um, I, I was interested in the UK even before that. I studied abroad when I was in college. I spent a year in Edinburgh. Oh, okay. So yeah, so my, my interest has always been kind of focused around the periphery, the Celtic fringe area, I yeah. guess you could say. And so the relationship of those regions to the center of power is something that I think I've been interested in all along. Okay. So... The study of international relations, we've been talking a little bit about, about that right now. Uh, why is that important to our world today? So the first thing I would say, and it's maybe a trite answer, but we obviously live in a global world, right? We're interconnected, so economically, politically, socially, culturally. And so the things that happen here affect other places. The things that happen other places affect here. So, you know, Brazil's approach to COVID matters in the U.S. The U.S. decisions about climate policy matter in Tuvalu and Palau. Mm -hmm. um, Myanmar's treatment of minorities affects Bangladesh. You know, who wins elections in Belarus matters for the EU's immigration policy. So, you know, it, it's we're not hermetically sealed. And so having a, a global understanding of these things matters for the way we live our lives, um, even just, you know, locally and nationally. The other thing is, um, you know, I, I feel like the world feels to me and a lot of people, you know, fractured, increasingly nativist, authoritarian. And, and, and IR doesn't guarantee that someone walks away wanting to challenge those kinds of ideas, because those theories exist within, you know, the study of IR too. But I think thinking about international relations from multiple lenses can shed light on both why countries and people might might take the actions that they can, and, and then also what we can do in response to, you know, maybe help use the resources and influence that we might have as, as communities in constructive ways. So sort of that uh, policy strategy match and the application of the tools of national power to achieve objectives. Sure, right? I mean, these are these are powerful tools. We should understand how best to use them. Not only ourselves, but how other countries might use them. Absolutely. Okay. And how about studying government? I mean, you, you earned a doctorate in government. W what importance do you see for that subject for undergraduate and, and even graduate students in college? And, and I, I'll even press you to say, should it be an important topic for high school students to start studying again? 
I mean, sure, I'm biased, of course, but uh, <laughs> I, I think absolutely. Um, and I think there are two things I'd say here. The first is um, there's an importance of the subject matter itself, um, knowing how government works, how it should work, how it could work. Uh, gives us some insight into why the state of politics is the way it is and um, and, and how we might imagine a, a different and, and, and better state of politics. And, and that's important in and of itself. And I think a little bit, you know, as an example, uh, my one of my intro classes at Carleton, it's a class on comparative politics where we look at, um, uh, you know, world governments and, and how they might um, differ in their approaches to problems that, you know, all governments have. How do you, um, how do you engage citizens? How do you develop economically? Those sorts of things. And and at one part, we talk a little bit about electoral systems. Mm -hmm. And if people have grown up in the U.S., they're most familiar with what we call first past the post, winner takes all majority rule election. It's simple. It's easy to understand. It's easy to administer. It's the dominant electoral system in the U.S., but it has consequences. So Mm -hmm. if people wonder about why it's so hard to get viable third parties or fourth parties or more at the national level, the electoral rules that you use are one of the most influential levers you can pull. So, you know, if people really want meaningful third or fourth or fifth parties, changing voting rules is an important thing to look at. And, you know, and that's one of those areas that's really esoteric, but it's powerful. And so studying these systems of government, the rules of government, the policies and their impacts, both intended and unintended, um, give us clues about how we can use those levers to build the kind of political societies we want. But the other small piece, it's not a small piece, but the other piece is that Social science and, and political science, you know, certainly studies human behavior, and human behavior is messy, right? We don't have, right. <laughs> we don't have law-like generalizations in political science because humans are more erratic than electrons, and so you know, history and context, social norms, idiosyncrasies, these all matter, and so. I think that studying political science offers us a little bit of a lesson in humility, I guess, because it it really underscores, you know, what are the many things we don't know? Mm-hmm. And, and it teaches us to be comfortable with ambiguity and nuance and shades of gray because nothing is absolute in politics. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there aren't absolute answers to most things. And, and I think that's a good thing to be comfortable with and to work within because life is ambiguous and full of nuance and shades of gray. So I, I, I'm going to ask a follow-up question on that, if I could. It's uh, when we take a look at comparative uh, government uh, around the world, right, world governments. If, if you take a look at, uh, you know, our system <coughs> that you were just mentioning, uh, and then you take a look at some of the other democracies ar- around the world, and most of the, a lot of them have parliamentary systems, which is very different than ours. Uh, we pride ourselves in Minnesota uh, on how participatory we are in elections every time we have an election. Uh, but there are countries out there where the participation rate is dramatically higher, and India would be one of them. And it's also the largest democracy in the world, if I have that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's the system in India like? Why, is, why, is, why are so many people so engaged in, in voting in India compared to the United States? So India does have a parliamentary system. It also has um, uh, an FPTP rule. So their electoral rules are like the U.S. But India is a much more diverse place, and that diversity is sort of regionally concentrated as well. So, you know, you have two big parties at the national level, like you do in the U.S., but the state-level dynamics are much more varied and and much more regionalized. And I think, you know, there are... um, 
there are a couple of things that 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 matter in in the Indian context, and you know, at this point, I'm not a scholar of India, so I can't go super deep into it. Sure. But yeah, it's okay. um, but the 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 relationship of of the parties uh, to um, different communities and the ways in which parties have sort of used their power, their clout, their influence to mobilize uh, people into big blocks of voters. I mean, parties play a really big role in mobilization, not just in India but in other places too. And I think mm-hmm. the parties have in India sort of done um, historically a lot to kind of mobilize people in the countryside, to mobilize, um, you know, uh, using, you know, trade unions, depending on the party, uh, to mobilize uh, other kinds of civil society groups, um, religious organizations, you know, so and this depends on which party we're talking about. But I think that kind of connection between political parties and civil society is not the same in all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's part of the answer. It's not the whole answer, but I think that's part. Okay. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Dev Gupta from the Department of Political Science at Carleton College. And we're just about to discuss the United Kingdom, Ireland, and related topics. Uh, so Dr. Gupta, let's sh- let's shift our focus now to the topic of the day, the UK and Ireland. Uh, let's begin with some basic questions. Uh, when people hear the term the United Kingdom, what what exactly does that mean? I love that you started with this question because I, I have this vivid memory in graduate school um, but when I first started studying the UK and, and a faculty member actually asked this question, you know, uh, what is the United Kingdom, you know, and, and how does that differ from Great Britain and, and these other entities, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland? And, the, and there was silence. No one answered. So I decided to break the silence and raise my, an, my hand and answered really confidently and totally incorrectly. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to kind of get a chance to sort of set the record state, uh, straight. So I think the the, 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 the key th- to understanding is that there are, there's a geographic entity here and a set of political entities here. And so geographically, we've got two islands, the island of Ireland and the island of Britain. And so the island of Britain includes Scotland, Wales, and England. And then the island of Ireland has Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But the political difference here is the difference between a state or country and nations. And so the state is this legal territorial entity with fixed borders, a national government that's the highest authority within those borders, uh, and it's recognized by other states in the international system. Whereas a nation is more of a cultural community, it's bound together by a sense of shared identity, a collective history. Um, It's what uh, political scientist Ben Anderson calls an imagined community. It doesn't necessarily have to be territorially bounded. It can be spread out in multiple states or there can be multiple nations in one state. And that's the case of the UK. So the UK is the political entity. It's the state. It has a national government um, headquartered in London. But within the UK, you have four distinctive nations. You've got Scotland as a nation, England as a nation, Wales as a nation, and then Northern Ireland, sort of problematically as a nation, we can get to that in a second, (laughs) all located within one state. So um, uh, the Celtic nations and um, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland all would be considered that, um, have some amount of autonomy. They have their own parliaments, but they all are sort of um, subsumed by the national uh, state government in London, the UK Parliament. Okay. So, so I heard you say Northern Ireland. That's different from the Republic of Ireland. Uh, can you explain how there are two Irelands with adjoining borders? You know, both are, are democratic. Yet one is its own republic and the other is part of the United Kingdom. Uh, perhaps we need a short lesson on how that came to be. 
So a short lesson is really tricky because this is a history <laughs> that goes back to at least the 16th century. Um, so I'm going to give it my best shot, but you're going to have to tell me if I need to, to sort of um, no, no, uh, go okay. ahead. So right. So Northern Ireland is one of the four nations of the UK, but that's not entirely correct because it's more complicated than that. Uh, and so part of the population of Northern Ireland sees itself as part of a larger Irish nation that spans the entire island, including North and South, uh, and part of it does not. So the island of Ireland was a single political entity um, that was uh, settled or colonized by Britain, reaching back to the 16th century, um, even though there were links between the two prior. And when I say it was a single political entity, it didn't have a single national government. There were you know, clans and chieftains, but um, it wasn't divided in the way that it is sort of North and South now. And the history of British-Irish relations is a history of power imbalances. You know, Britain um, and England more specifically is larger, richer, more militarily powerful, and relatively united compared to what Ireland was at that time. And of course, the big cultural distinctiveness is that Ireland is majority Catholic and Britain is majority Protestant. And in the 16th century, that matters a great deal, right? right. You know, you've got monarchs who are, you know, put in power or deposed because they are or are not, you know, a particular religion. Mm -hmm. And of course, by the time you get to Henry VIII and um, Protestant Britain is making this break, from you know the Catholic Church and the Catholic world, but they're surrounded by Catholic countries. You've got France and Spain and Portugal on on one side, and you've got Ireland on the other, and so you know quelling Ireland has political reasons. Um, you, it provides some safety on the flank, and then it has economic benefits for for Britain as well. You know because of that colonial relationship. So. Mm. Exporting agriculture uh, is one of the the key things that Ireland um, uh, does. You know, even during the potato famine, Ireland exports livestock and agricultural produce to Britain. So you have this this economic and, and political you know intertwining, um, but because of that 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 cultural um, difference in terms of religion, there is this um, uh, move to sort of quell or tame the kind of Catholic um, elements in, in Ireland um, through economic means, through political means. And, and, and these, are, these are plays that would you know, have familiarity to any student of colonialism. But in 1800, Ireland and Britain formally join as a political unit, the Act of Union in 1800. And so um, it dissolves the Irish Parliament, which was always sort of weak, um, but brought it under one parliament. But it made the Irish British citizens like sort of fully, right? And so um, as democratic norms and the right to vote expand in the 19th and 20th century, it provides Irish citizens, you know, who are British citizens at the time, additional standing to challenge um, government policy. And so in the 19th century, a home rule movement starts to try and win more political rights and, and economic rights for the Catholic population, which had been really marginalized economically and politically. And it, it was a hard fight. Um, they, they brought um, uh, bills to Parliament uh, twice, was defeated twice. But then by the time you get to the early 20th century, political coalitions change in the UK. And the Home Rule Bill passes, but it was delayed by the onset of World War One. Right, right. And so while it was delayed, uh, a growing sort of radical um, uh, faction in Irish nationalism takes advantage of the British preoccupation uh, with World War One to mount a rebellion. This is the 1916 Easter Rising. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the it, it failed. The plotters were caught. They were executed by the British. Um, but the public, the Irish public, which was not in sympathy with the plotters, uh, saw the British response, this execution, as totally heavy-handed, and public opinion swung around the other direction. Overreach. Overreach, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, and so the, the radical um, uh, sort of faction 
got increasingly popular, got more support. And it touched off an act of war, of, of independence between um, Irish independence forces and the British government. And finally, the treaty, the, the, the conflict was brought to an end by a treaty um, that created the Irish Free State. The British basically, you know, like it was, it was fought to a point where the British said, you know, actually, the best thing is just to sort of cut our losses and, <laughs> and, and let go. Okay. So the Irish Free State was established, but with a caveat. And this is the reason that there's a land border there. Northern Ireland, the what we know is Northern Ireland, the northern six counties of, of that island, um, sometimes referred to as Ulster. There's a whole thing about why that's not entirely geographically accurate, but this is how we know. Um, that part of Ireland uh, was the most Protestant part. Okay. And so uh, it was the least willing to go along with a free um, Ireland because they were dominant in that part of Ireland. But in, a, in an entirely free Irish state, they would be a distinct minority population, whereas part of Britain, they were part of the Protestant majority. So, and, and they threatened active rebellion. Uh, and so a compromise was a divided Ireland. The Republic was the southern 26 counties, uh, including Donegal, which is actually in the north, but it's part of the 26. And then the six counties of Northern Ireland, which remain part of the UK, part of the Crown, part of the United Kingdom. Okay. So, so clearly we know that some people... Uh, were and and are not happy about the division of the Irish people among two different political entities. Uh, I happen to know that one of the most popular courses that you teach at Carleton College discusses the Troubles, uh, which may or, or may not be over, frankly. Uh, can you explain why, uh, why and when the Irish Republican Army or the IRA came into being? Maybe a quick history on that. Uh, and then conclude with a discussion on the period known as the Troubles? Sure. So Northern Ireland's creation certainly was not satisfactory to Irish nationalists. And, and here I just need to take a, a minute to explain some terminology. So, um, you know, those of us who study Northern Ireland sometimes find ourselves slipping in and out of some synonyms that, that may not seem like obvious synonyms to other people. So we might use the word nationalist and unionist. Nationalist refers, refers to the groups of people who want Northern Ireland to be reunited with um, the Republic. And one unified Irish nation. The unionists want continued union with Britain. We also sometimes use Catholic and Protestant interchangeably with uh, nationalist and unionist, because most nationalists tend to be Catholic, though not all, mm -hmm. and most unionists tend to be Protestant, though not all. Okay. And uh, and then just to make it even more complicated, there's also the term Republican and Loyalist. Um, and Republicans are a subset of the nationalists, and Loyalists are a subset of the unionists. And, and informally, the way they tend to be used is that the Republicans tend to be identified with more sort of militant or hardline elements of the nationalists. Um, so Republicans are often um, used to kind of signify or identify um, the IRA, um, its political wing, Sinn Féin, and their supporters and other groups sort of on that side of the, 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 the spectrum. And loyalists are most often used to describe uh, the paramilitaries on the unionist side. So that's a quick sort of crash course in the terminology. So um, the nationalists were unhappy about, about Northern Ireland being separated. From, from the Republic, um, left within the UK, which was seen as a foreign occupier, a colonizer. So immediately, groups started agitating to, re to reunify the two. And, and, um, and then there were opposing groups on the Unionist side vowing to never let that happen. So the IRA is the chief paramilitary group on the, on the re reunify Ireland side. 
and Sinn Féin is its political arm. Uh, And so the origins of the IRA come from before the 1921 partition. The seeds go back to a group called the Irish Volunteers, who were fighters involved with opposing British rule in Ireland. And and they were the ones who were involved in the Easter Rising. They fought against the British in the war afterwards. But when the Free State was created, um, the group split. So some people accepted the treaty that established the partition. Uh, They basically went on to form the nucleus of the new Irish um, army, Irish Free State Army, uh, and, and became supporters of the new Irish government. And others rejected the treaty and the partition that it created. And that's the path from which the IRA springs. And so the IRA fought against the partition from then onwards, although not constantly. It waxes and wanes. But starting in 1968-69, going through 1998, you have relatively constant conflict. And this is the period known as the Troubles. Uh, And it starts in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, with the civil rights movement that was inspired pretty directly by the civil rights movement in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. If you go to Belfast, there are murals that depict elements of the Troubles all over the place. And you'll see murals with Martin Luther King's picture on them. Uh, And so the civil rights movement, um, which was largely supported by Catholics, um, uh, although uh, supporters of the civil rights movement would say it was not a nationalist movement, it was really about providing Catholics in Northern Ireland with um, uh, equal voting rights, because that actually was not the case. It was not one person, one vote at the time. Um, really? It was, it was, there were all kinds of ways in which, and this goes back to electoral rules and how they matter, yeah. there were all kinds of ways in which uh, the Protestant vote was weighted more heavily um, uh, compared to the Catholic vote. So hmm. things like um, universities had um, uh, institutional votes, and the universities were Protestant-dominated. Um, if you were a business owner, uh, you you had potential access to more votes and business was dominated by Protestants. So there were all kinds of ways in which uh, Catholics felt systematically disenfranchised. There were issues of gerrymandering, all these sorts of things. And so um, the civil rights movement was uh, not tied overtly to nationalism, but the hardline Protestants, the Unionists, feared that it was, right? They worried that this was just a front, it would create a slippery slope. And so the civil rights protesters um, were met with violence. Um, and, and some of that violence was uh, tolerated by police and other violence had, had were perpetrated by police or encouraged by police. And so, um, you know, the IRA was was resurrected, and it, it had been in doldrums for years at that point. Um, they'd basically decommissioned their weapons, but given the state of unrest and the sense that the police were not neutral agents, right? They was a, dominated by Protestants. The IRA was sort of resurrected as a protection force for Catholic neighborhoods. Okay. And then this resurrection of the IRA confirmed the worst fears of the hardline Unionists, and right. uh, and felt that you know like this was confirmation that there was something nefarious afoot. And so it fueled um, the unionist, the loyalist paramilitaries. And so it created a classic, what we call security dilemma in international relations. What one side does to feel more secure threatens the other side. What the other side does to make themselves feel more secure in return ends up, you know, threatening the first side. So it creates this sort of um, escalation, right? Right. It's a a classic uh, arms race kind of phenomenon. And so uh, this 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 violence sort of escalated and escalated, and Britain finally sent troops in. Britain had adopted a pretty hands-off approach to Northern Ireland since 1921. Uh, and so they sent troops in, and they were initially welcomed by Catholics as a neutral 
outside force to restore order. But it ended up going very badly, and the troops ended up being drawn into the conflict. And, and there are lots of reasons why one particular regiment, known as the Parachute Regiment, for example, was trained in the colonies. And so their approach to policing in a colonial context did not fit no. the Irish context no, at all. And no, so, no. right, this heavy-handed response, and, and not all um, uh, regiments were like this, but you know some of them were. It alienated Catholics. And so um, this led to even more um, support and, and boldness from the IRS. And, and, and that led to a low-level but, but pretty constant civil conflict for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, we, we could go on for hours talking about sort of the tactics that were used and, and how the IRA targeted uh, uh, the British military and, and British political leadership and whatnot uh, during the course of the Troubles, but uh, we only have so much time. <laughs> how, how did the Troubles finally come to an end? Yeah, or, or should we say maybe an indefinite pause uh, yeah, based on new, new events? Yeah, I, I think— uh, Northern Ireland is a great example of um, there is uh, a peace, but it's a it's a fragile peace in a lot of ways, and and the peace doesn't mean that the underlying tensions have been fully resolved because they have not. Yeah. So in 1998, there was a negotiated peace. It resulted in um, the Belfast Agreement. It's also known as the Good Friday Agreement because that's the day it was signed, uh, and then a lot of things had to fall into place to make that possible. Uh, and and so part of it was. Um, serendipity in terms of changing geopolitical context. So you have the end of the Cold War, changes the the sort of security situation. Um, you know, there uh, is a, a, a switch in the late 90s, um, even before 9-11, about the way in which um, people who would consider themselves freedom fighters, um, you know, that that's a late, you know, one person's right. freedom fighter is another person's <laughs> terrorist, right? That sort of um, old adage. But it, it became a harder sell um, for, for groups that were primarily using force. Um, there was new leadership in London. There was an election in in in, in nineteen in the nineteen nineties that brought Tony Blair and the Labour Party um, to power. They had a lot of political capital. They had less political allegiance to the Unionist population, and so a lot of these sort of larger things were happening. But. I also have to say that there was a lot of, of, of risk and hard work by politicians and, and figures in Northern Ireland. So moderate pol politicians on both sides um, took risks to work together, even though it made them vulnerable to charges of selling out their respective communities um, from the hardliners. There's this idea called the radical flank effect where, you know, moderates can can always be sort of outbid or, or outmaneuvered by by groups on their flanks that say you're not doing enough, you're not moving fast enough, you're you're being co-opted, you're selling out. And that, so that's a real that, risk. That sounds for moderates. a little bit like exactly what we look at today in America, maybe. <laughs> moderates are really vulnerable to that, yeah. you know, in a lot of places. And so the moderate Catholic leader John Hume and the moderate unionist leader um, uh, David Trimble took risks to to partner together. Uh, John Hume took risks to work with the leader of Sinn Féin, uh, Jerry Adams, who also had IRA connections, to engage him in the political process, which was not popular with, you know, a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Jerry Adams took risks to move uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA to an increasingly political footing, which was a, a, a risky process because the IRA had in the past split over this uh, issue of, of how much emphasis to put on, on, on politics and electoral and institutional politics for this physical violence. So all of those things had to sort of combine. And then the, the last thing I would just say that added to this uh, is that um, 
uh, both sides had reached a point of, of attrition, I suppose you could say. Um, the IRA was never going to defeat the British Army by force of arms. Right. And the IRA and, and the British Army, you know, both, you know, found it difficult to eradicate the IRA, but also, you know, there was a lot of, 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 of you know, costs that had been invested in, 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 in Northern Ireland. And right. at some point, neither side wanted to continue paying that price. Yeah. So the negotiated peace finally comes into being, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, and the troubles have ended. Uh, <laughs> and so everybody complies with the accords at that point. Or, or, or is there still an armed wing of the IRA? So to answer this question, uh, you have to realize that there's not one IRA. There are several IRAs. Yeah. It becomes a sort of alphabet soup of organization. There is the provisional IRA, continuity IRA, official IRA, real IRA, new IRA. I mean, there's lots of IRAs. So a lot of different radical groups who disagree with the political uh, negotiated end to the troubles and the situation who refused to lay down arms. Right. So, and and, and there, there are multiple IRAs, and, and that's just the IRA. There are other groups that sure. are not the IRA. And so there's a history of factionalism. The main group is the provisional IRA. And, and when we talk about the IRA, that's usually what we're talking about. They did agree to de decommission weapons as part of the Belfast Agreement. It was a difficult process. There was a lot of controversy over the timetables, moving too quickly, not moving quickly enough. But at, in 2005-2006, the Independent Monitoring Commission and the Independent International Commission on Decommissioning uh, did validate the fact that arms have been put beyond use and effectively decommissioned for the provisional IRA. Now, there have been reports that, that they didn't decommission everything, uh, and, and the, the different monitoring commissions have basically said effectively they've decommissioned most things. But the issue is that there are other IRAs and other dissident groups that absolutely still have weapons. We mm -hmm. don't necessarily have great information about how much, how many, um, but it's clear that they do. Yeah, and har hard to penetrate those groups because they're such a tight-knit uh, uh, linkages there. Uh, so for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Dev Gupta from the Department of Political Science at Carleton College. We're discussing United Kingdom, Ireland, and related topics. So let's move uh, to the Brexit deal. Uh, the U.K. Uh, leaves the European Union's economic cooperative. H how has that impacted Northern Ireland? It's very complicated for Northern Ireland. Uh, it's one of a small handful of places where the UK has a land border with another European Union country. Um, so there's a border in, in Northern Ireland and Ireland, Gibraltar and Spain, and then Cyprus, where the UK has a military base. But Northern Ireland is where it's certainly the most politically fraught. Uh, and so to understand why it's politically fraught, a couple of just sort of key contextual things. The the Belfast Agreement succeeds in, in establishing some kind of a peace because it has this sort of Schrodinger's cat-like maneuver <laughs> built into it, whereas both sides could claim a kind of victory. Uh, and the victory that unionists could claim is that there's still a border there and that technically Northern Ireland is still part of the UK. And the nationalists can claim that border doesn't really matter because it's easy to move across it. There are no checkpoints. Uh, you can live on one side and work on the other side as if it were one united country, right? And so the border um, has to do both of these things at the same time. And the fundamental problem of Brexit is it can't do those things at the same time. Right. It, 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 that soft border is what we call it. The soft border becomes a hard border because not only is it now a, a border between 
the UK and Ireland, it's a border between the UK and the EU. And the economics of it is is what makes it particularly difficult because the European Union has a single market. So, um, you know, goods and, 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 and products can move within the EU as easily as things move between Minnesota and Wisconsin, mm-hmm. right? And so we don't have checkpoints at the border between states to sort of, you know, check what's coming in and what's coming out with like tariffs and assigning taxes and inspecting how products are made. You can imagine how that could gum up the works of trade. And, and that's part of the reason why the European Union was, um, was established. And so the problem is the UK is outside of that now. And so they can set different tariffs for, for goods coming in from, you know, the US or, you know, from 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 other parts of the world and there are in addition to you know different tariffs different rules of production so the EU has these rules around you know uh, what you can feed livestock that differ from what say the US decides what you can feed livestock and now the UK can decide we want to let you know US livestock in without the restrictions that the US has so anything that goes between the UK and the EU has to be monitored and it mm-hmm. has to be assessed for tariffs and these rules so the border issue for Northern Ireland is where do you put the border? Is the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which is where the political border is? Well, the unionists would really like that because it reaffirms that Northern Ireland is part of the UK. The nationalists would hate that because it divides <laughs> the Ireland. The other alternative that was proposed is that the, the customs border goes in the middle of the Irish Sea so that the land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic is sort of seamless. Things can move as if there's no border at all. But then things coming from Northern Ireland to the rest of the UK have to go through inspection and that processing at ports. And the nationalists like that because it treats the island as a unit. And the unionists hate that because it it, it cleaves off Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK, and that's right. problematic for them. Right. And these are mutually exclusive solutions, right? Both of those things can't happen. So, yeah, so <laughs> Brexit makes the Schrodinger's cat problem a real problem because you can't maintain the fiction. So currently, after lots and lots of, 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 of haggling and negotiations, um, you know, the unionists have, have not gotten their way, the, the current customs border is in the North Sea. Hmm. Uh, and so, and, and the reason why it ended up there is, I think we have, it's more complicated than we have time <laughs> to get into, but it has to do with sort of coalition politics in the UK. But it has caused protests from Protestants. So there were, you know, um, lots of protests at, at, you know, the port of, you know, the, the ports in, in Northern Ireland when goods were coming in. And it's mm-hmm. caused problems that uh, the unionists sort of point to, to sort of say, now, you're basically treating Northern Ireland as if it's not part of the same country. Uh, and, you know, so um, if, if you're moving from uh, the island of Britain to Northern Ireland, you're not leaving the country at all, right? right. But you need customs declaration forms for your <laughs> possessions if you're using a moving firm. Um, you know, the, uh, there are uh, some... Uh, uh, companies that were sh- uh, suspending dis- uh, sort of the mailing of packages, the l- delivery of packages to Northern Ireland, um, uh, and, and and some packages were labeled as international goods, even though again, you know, it's all within the same country. So these are sort of you know um, sort of small examples, but but the problem is is definitely there, and you know, COVID also raised problems because the EU and the UK had different sort of procedures in terms of how to get vaccines out to people and yeah. when people were eligible. So, I mean, there are all kinds of places where um, uh, this decision has has really affected life in Northern Ireland. But going back to the troubles, you know, 
by putting the land, by, by putting the, the border, the customs border in the Irish Sea, um, nationalists feel emboldened by this because right. now, you know, you can sort of further sort of say this is one united island. Uh, it has a united economy. Uh, it should be united politically. And mm. unionists feel even more on the defensive than they were before. That probably doesn't bode well for uh, continued peace in Northern Ireland. But we, we, I want to move on because we have a couple more questions I want to get to. What about Scotland? So the Scots held an independence vote a, a number of years ago, and, and that failed. Uh, the Scots have been somewhat angered by the Brexit deal. They wanted to have that relationship with the EU. Uh, do you see a serious move forward now for toward a new vote for independence for the Scot- for Scotland from the United Kingdom? Yeah, so I was actually in Scotland on the eve of the election, the <laughs> referendum back in 2014, and, and so this was really fascinating to me. Um, and it was it was really close. I mean, when yeah. the when the referendum failed, and my my instinct back then, and, and there's no way to really test this at this point, but my instinct had was that if the referendum had been a little bit further in the future, the momentum from the the Leave campaign would have been um, enough to maybe make a, a difference. Um, you know, it was a much more energized and well-organized um, campaign compared to the people who wanted to remain within Britain. But that's that's 2014. Um, it's interesting because um, Scotland is very distinctive politically from the rest of, of, of the UK in many ways, and certainly compared to England. Um, it's much more uh, progressive um, politically. Uh, it, 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 you know, and, and if Scotland were to leave the UK, it would really throw the balance of power between the centre left and the centre right. You know, completely. It's, 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 it, it, it would be unsettling, right? Um, it would, <laughs> it would, it would deal a blow to the the sort of forces of the the centre left, um, yeah. uh, because Scotland is such a reliable sort of left voting um, place. It's also the most pro EU part of the UK, and I guess one of the things that's uncertain is um, if Scotland were to leave, would it be allowed to join the EU? And a lot of the arguments back in 2014 seemed premised on the fact that it would be able to. But the problem is other EU countries have to vote for Uh, new members. And there is good reason to believe that Spain would absolutely not want Scotland to be able to join because of its own worries about Catalonia. Right. (laughs) So anyway, um, uh, in terms of, of, of whether Scotland would would go for a new referendum, it's interesting. I, I think the, the, the sentiments in Scotland are a little bit more muddled and, and, and not as clear-cut as you might imagine, given the sort of um, uh, general differences and, and antipathies between the two. Uh, and in April 2021, there was a poll actually done that showed there was more support in Northern Ireland for a second Scottish referendum compared to Scotland. So <laughs> 66% of respondents in Northern Ireland said that, you know, were the Scottish National Party to, uh, you know, uh, be the the, um, uh, the the dominant power in Parliament in Scotland going forward, they should have a second referendum. Only 56% of Scottish rep- respondents said that there should be a second referendum. And it's not clear to me that if a referendum were held today or even next year that um, pro-independence forces would prevail. I'm actually, I would probably bet against it at this particular moment in time. Okay. Uh, So is there anything else the listeners should know about the situation in in Northern Ireland? It seems like that's sort of the the linchpin here in uh, in uh, Irish-UK relations. Any hopeful signs that the peaceful political resolution of these serious political differences will be a way forward rather than a return to bloodshed? 
So I'm, I tend to be an optimist, um, which is perhaps a naive position for a political scientist to, to take. But there are a couple of things I would just sort of point out. It is worth keeping a, a serious eye um, on, on dissident Republican groups. I think they are and not going away. And that's part of your study right now, right? Aren't you looking yeah. at those things? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of the things that's most interesting about the dissident Republicans is um, how what their appeal is to younger people, mm. right? And so when I was last uh, – when I was doing my, most of my field work in Northern Ireland, um, that would have been about 10 years after the Good Friday Agreement, one of the, the things that people would talk about is, you know, people are tired of conflict. That was certainly true. And there is, um, you know, a generation that is able to kind of compare what life was like pre-Troubles and what life is has been like post-Troubles and mm -hmm. the ways in which life has um, normalized in a lot of ways, right? You know, you can, um, there, there's, a, there's a shopping center in, in the center of Belfast, uh, which uh, was built relatively recently. I mean, at this point, maybe 10 years ago. And it's a, it's, a, it's a shopping center that has this big outdoor plaza and it's the entire thing is covered in glass. Hmm. And the first time I saw it, I thought, well, that couldn't have been built 20 years ago. <laughs> no way. Um, yeah. You know, it, it would have been an irresistible target. Right. Uh, right. But, you know, Belfast is this lively place um, with, you know, a cafe culture, uh, despite the weather. And, you know, it's a really popular tourist destination. So, like, there's this revitalization that happened in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement. And people can see that. But the problem now is you have a generation past that, where they have not known the act of troubles, they've only known this post Good Friday agreement status quo. Uh, and so, you know, they've grown up in peace. And so it's easier, I think, to romanticize what, you know, armed resistance might look like. I think that's a piece of it. Um, Sinn Féin is the dominant you know, nationalist Catholic party. And so it's the party of the establishment, right? right? It's not the challenger. And so, you know, now they have to answer for economic problems and social problems and political problems. And so there's space that is created for new challengers who are disgruntled with the status quo, who will make arguments about what would be better. And the alternative that has not been tried, right? Status quo with Britain has been tried. The alternative that hasn't been tried is what does it mean to join with Ireland? And so there are ways in which those arguments, you know, still resonate among a, a portion of the people. But, you know, I do think that, um, you know, the economics of, of Brexit are worth keeping an eye on as well. You know, what will the fortunes of the UK be outside of the EU versus Ireland? Yeah, especially in a post-COVID post time frame when we finally get beyond all this. Exactly, exactly. Because the economic situation has always been part of the analysis for Northern Ireland as well. You know, when Ireland was a relatively poor country compared to Britain, it was easier to make the case that it was better for everybody to stay with Britain, you know, better welfare state, better sort of social services, all that. And then in the 90s, when the Celtic Tiger economy of Ireland really took off, it kind of was inverse. Like, why wouldn't we want to join our forces with right. this economically dynamic um, uh, uh, country? Uh, and at that point, Ireland was like, I don't know, Northern Ireland would be a big sort of drain on our public coffers. <laughs> yeah. So the economics of, of Ireland in the EU and Britain is something to work, um, uh, keep an eye on as well. Okay. Ultimately, I think democracy works if people are willing to sustain it and they see other alternatives as illegitimate. Um, I think a non-democratic alternative was seen as illegitimate by most people during the Troubles. I think it's still true today. So not that it can't happen, but I, I think it would take a pretty big crisis um, to, to get us back into full-on conflict. All right. Well, Dr. Dev Gupta, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. I have two other just quick follow-up questions. Uh, what can you tell us about the students at Carleton College who've committed to majoring in international relations? What, what are they telling you and your fellow faculty members 
about why they've chosen that as their major? I think that the people, the students who show up in our classes are really curious and passionate about learning about the world. And they... Um, and, and these are yeah. not students not just from Minnesota, but from across the nation and even from around the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think Carleton is increasingly um, a, a school that has a face turned outwards to the world. You know, we have you know more international students than we've had had in years past. And, and certainly, we I, I, don't, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I think it's not all 50 states, but, you know, a pretty healthy proportion of 50 states represented. Yeah, I think most Carleton students that I've encountered have a desire to give back in some fashion, right? And so I think they want to make their communities better. They want to make the world better. They care really passionately about a range of issues from, you know, peace and security to environmental um, uh, sustainability uh, to, um, you know, uh, gender equality and, and, and social justice and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So um, I think they show up in classes in international relations because they want to understand analytic tools to try and make the change happen that they want to happen. They want a better better understanding of policy. They want to understand different models around the world and, you know, what has worked in other countries, right? If we want to think about, you know, changing up a healthcare system in the U.S., it, it, pays, it, it makes sense to pay attention to what the U.K. has done, what Sweden has done, what Japan has done, and and. and, and what have been good models and what have been the problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think they're motivated by a desire uh, to make um, better communities and and learning from uh, the world as a laboratory helps them do that. So secondly, if if people wanted to learn more about your work, uh, where should they turn? Do you have like a, a website or something like that where they can pick up your books or your articles? I don't. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm I'm a luddite when it comes to this. Um, uh, I suppose that uh, so you know the the you could always search for me uh, in the Carlton directory and and drop me an email if people want to read my work. Uh, my book is available on Amazon uh, and and independent retailers. Uh, and if you live in Northfield, Content Books can can help you out getting. A, a copy of it. It is actually backordered right now, so oh. it might be a little bit harder to get hold <laughs> okay. of it. Right. Um, uh, turns out, protest is a perennial, evergreen topic for people to read about. So, right. uh, but you know, it should be back in stock uh, pretty soon. Professor Gupta, thank you so much. Thank you very much, John. So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning, and I hope you'll join us again. Please consider emailing KYMN Radio to let us know how we're doing with national security this week. We'd absolutely appreciate your feedback. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Come back for the match.